Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have an amazing founder, founder turned investor, you know, a founder that uh, has had several exits, incredible exits, and now an investor on the other side. You know, he's on his second, you know, now fund or, 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 or company fund, you know, structure, a structure type, and we'll get into that. But we're going to be covering quite a bit of stuff, you know, from really surfacing the things that matter as a founder, really being laser focused on those, knowing when to get out, you know, when to sell your business, your baby, when to let go of it, which is very difficult. And then also assessing people, especially on the investment side, as well as, you know, questions to ask during diligence and how to filter through things. And lastly, lastly, but not least, you know, is ultimately founders in climate tech, you know, which is the segment that right now he is investing in. You know, they have the world on their shoulders and what that means and how to go through those roller coasters too. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Josh Felser. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I have uh, two coffee cups of coffee under my belt, so I'm ready to go. Amazing. I love it. So, hey, born in, in Maine, but grew up in Miami. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? <laughs> well, I mean, growing up in Miami back then, we were always on boats. We never, uh, Miami Beach wasn't, wasn't in existence yet as a destination spot for, you know, for the crowd we see there today. And so Miami was a very uh, water-based town. And and I was lucky to grow up in nature, but my nature was the ocean and the, and, the, and the Biscayne Bay. Now, in your case, you know, very interesting that you decided to study out of all things political science. Why? I, I, was, I, I was a kind of a clueless student uh, at Duke. And, and I think it, it, was, the, it was the most uh, psychological uh, major that wasn't psychology. Right, political science and studying the ambition of of leaders really was what drove me. The human side of political science was really what drove me to major in, in that world. And in your case, in between that and then also um, grad school, you were trading. So the whole thing with trading, how did that come up? So I studied Japanese at Duke, and I could kind of get by. And I have a funny story about that that I can tell you. Uh, and when I, after I finished my, my language study, I just, uh, I felt like I wanted to be active. I didn't want to, you know, I'm impatient, like most founders. I didn't want to, I didn't want to become an analyst somewhere. I wanted to actually do something. And trading was something after school that I could jump right into and immediately begin having an impact. And so I interviewed with this Japanese bank. During the interview, they were asking me all these questions about, am I an individual? Am I too much of an individual? Am I part of the team? And they didn't know I could speak Japanese. And they're asking these questions and they would discuss in Japanese amongst themselves. And at some point I had to say, hey, I speak Japanese. And there was silence in the room, dead silence, when they realized I understood everything they had said about me. And they still hired me. So it worked out. So yeah, currency trading, it's still, of all the things I've done in my life, it probably has the greatest impact on me today. As a founder, as an investor, it's a very helpful skill set to dealing with people and to making decisions about business. Now, talking about business, because obviously you've gone to become a founder, but, uh, but it took you some time to get there. You know, it took you, you know, taking a rodeo there in the media side of things, working at Fox, doing Sky, you know, TV there in the UK, also working at a telco company in Boulder. I guess 
also from traveling and from being in so many different places like you have, whether you were born and you were only one year old and then you went to Miami, then from Miami to LA, you know, to UK, I mean, all over the place. What kind of, what kind of worldview you've gotten from like moving so much around? Well, first of all, Alejandro, you're just said that I'm an old founder, (laughs) (laughs) which I was, no, it's a, it's a good lesson because you don't have to be 22 and found a company. I was, I think, 30, 32, 31, 32 when I founded my first company. You know, I just wasn't ready. And so part of the moving around and having those different experiences really helped prepare me to be a founder. And some people need preparation. Some people are bored to do it and they do it in their 20s or even in their teens. I actually needed, I wasn't confident enough yet. I needed to go have some life experiences and then found a company. And so that kind of, there are two kinds of founders, right? There's not one that wins. There are two kinds of founders. Some are just know when they're very young, they want to be a founder. And some have to mature and go through life to actually get to that point. I was that second founder. What do you think, what do you think needed to happen? You know, whether you were working at Fox, Sky TV, or the telco company, what do you think needed to be those pieces that needed to come together for you to start, you know, thinking, hey, I think this is not for me. I think I have to start something on my own and then pack the bags and arrive in San Francisco. I mean, that's kind of like a, like a, like a 360. Yeah, it was. It really was. I, um, confidence is one of them. I just didn't have confidence in, my, in who I was. I didn't know who I was. I wasn't confident in my own skin. That was one. Uh, the second was I had to get fired from a job. You know, I had to get fired. And I remember I got basically pushed out when I was um, in London at, at News Corp. And it just made me so angry. Uh, and then it made me turn inward and understand what had happened. And then I, I realized that I needed to be my own boss. I, I actually didn't want to play the political game. I wanted to actually be a leader and I wanted to be in charge of my own destiny and not depend on maneuvering within a big company to kind of make things happen. That combined with my confidence kind of led me to start my first company. So let's talk about that. You know, obviously you are at this point packing the bags, you land in San Francisco. What is the, uh, the, the process of now being going from corporate to, uh, to, to the venture world and, and then figuring something that is exciting to, uh, to really take action. How did that look like? I mean, for the most of us have, that have jumped from like a big company to start a company, you know, start to, to do a startup, have had enough, have pushed up against the walls within those big companies to realize that, that we need to change. We need to do something different. And I think I was no exception to that. And I remember when I got to San Francisco, and it was amazing here then, like just amazing. Everything was starting to happen. Nobody knew where it was going. We just, we just started to get glimmers of, of the future of our lives, like when, we, when I landed in, in San Francisco. And I started out basically as an entrepreneur in residence at a big uh, design agency. They were doing all the most innovative work, building websites for Nike and, and Levi's. That was where the innovation was in the beginning, in the design world. But while I was there, I, I just... The, the, the bug grew in me, right? The, this startup bug grew in me. And I had this idea along with my colleagues at, at the company that, you know, my design agency, that music was so dated and needed to change. And we had no choice. We had to just listen to what radio threw at us. And I met my eventual co-founder at a conference and we just had a meeting of the minds and he was doing a music thing and I was doing a music thing. And our, my initial jump into into uh, the world of the internet was really a merger between the two of our ideas. 
And so I joined forces with Dave Samuel, who became my partner for many, many years. And we created this amazing music company that was the first of its kind. So I, we really were part of the, we, we literally were part of the digitization of everything because we were taking CDs that we would go buy at the local music store. We'd rip them onto servers so we could deliver them in the cloud to people all over the world. And then obviously the uh, the company ended up getting acquired, uh, quite a sizable acquisition, no? being the first uh, you know, rodeo in the venture world, getting an acquisition there for $320 million. You know, it's pretty good. So uh, I guess, what, what would you say were the ingredients that needed to be in place for that kind of outcome to happen? We were the leader in the space. We were the first. We were, the, we were by far the leader in the space. And, uh, and Dave and I were a really good match. I mean, I had a lot of the business experience in media, and he was, you know, kind of the techie operator. And, and we joined forces, and we knew what we each did best, and we let the other one do it. We didn't try and, try and micromanage each other. We just kind of unleashed our superpowers together, and it was exactly what the company needed. And so in my first startup's case, we were a rocket ship. We never looked back. We never had, we had issues along the way, but we just kept going. And I remember there was an article published in um, uh, Cyberbull, one of the rag that's long, long gone. And in the article, they said, we think that AOL should buy Spinner. It was amazing. They telegraphed it. And then like within a few weeks, we got multiple offers. One of them was from AOL and it came over a fax machine. <laughs> wow. That's incredible. Yeah. And, and, and what was it like to to go through that first transaction, you know, for you. Yeah, so I, um, everyone in the company remembers that I was, I was in charge of the negotiation and I walked around with a massive uh, tub of Tums and I was constantly, throughout the day, for the week of the negotiation, I was, just e I was just eating Tums all day long, not healthy, but I was so stressed and so anxious. And I finished that, that whole tub by the end of, of the week. And I remember they flew us out to um to dallas aol did and we're sitting in this room and invited one of our investors by the way this this only happens when you have total trust one of our investors i totally trusted and i had her sitting in another room during the negotiation and we would kind of have the negotiation with the board of aol and then we i'd go into this room and i'd say okay here's where we are and at one point we were having these crazy negotiations it seemed like they were rooted in some kind of data or science but really it was just dave and i saying okay, 350 million sounds good, 320 million sounds good. And I remember they, they, um, we decided to set a very specific price, a very specific price, thinking that would make AOL believe that we had some calculation we were doing. But it was just air, right? We weren't we really were. So I remember we went in and I said, okay, we'll sell for 326 million. And I knew it would come back with some even number that happened to be 320 million. And it was that loose and we accepted it and we signed it, it was over. But it was just, there's this idea, the mystery of how, how M&A works. And in many cases, there's no mystery. It's, it's people, two people trying to outmove each other psychologically with numbers that aren't rooted in actual numbers, right? It's just, we're trying to come up with numbers that I think will work for, that will help. Both sides are trying to think of a number that sounds good and Sounds like it was well thought out, but really it's total chance. And that's kind of what happened to us. I hear you. Now, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So the chapter, you know, obviously a spinner comes to an end with the acquisition. You did the 
vesting and resting at AOL for a little bit, no, as they would say. And then right after that, you know, you um, basically went to the next chapter, which was starting Crackle. So second, second go at it, you know, obviously you had a little more clarity and visibility into what the full cycle looked like. So why Crackle out of all things? Well, I mean, I, it's, Crackle started out as a, I went to, um, like all of us out here, I went to Burning Man. And uh, that's a whole other interview, but let's just leave it. I went to Burning Man and I came back with all of these. It was right when there were um, there were lots of portable cameras that were appearing. This was obviously before the iPhone. And, uh, and I had all these photos and videos I wanted to share with my friends and family. There was no way to do it, right? There was no easy way to do it. There were FTP servers, which most of your audience won't even know what that is. And... And so I decided I had to create a company that would enable us to share our personal media with our friends and family. And so we built this, uh, this dark net that we made light. It was a mass market dark net where we actually enabled people to connect applications on their desktops and share media with each other, including listening to music on your hard drive. So we were the first to, to kind of do that too, which is really interesting before, you know, before Napster and all the others that came after. And, uh, and it worked, we had a million downloads, but, the internet was enabling cloud cloud-based sharing and 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 it the days of desktop software were kind of over you know and so we we saw that coming and so one of the hardest things ever done was realizing that we were on the wrong path and i had to convince the entire company to actually switch gears and focus on a public video sharing company which is what crackle became and move away from this peer-to-peer environment we had created that was more private and I remember the way that I did it was I didn't tell everybody what to do. I just said, here are my worries. Here is, I'm open to ideas. Here's what I think the solution is. What are your ideas? And so I made it very collaborative and consensual. And it worked. Not a single person quit. The whole company switched gears and focused on this new direction. And it ended up being a success. I can tell you why. We sold it in a second, but I want to make sure that answers your question. Yeah, no, that did, that did. So, so tell, tell us why. Why did it become a success? So um, we just saw this. We were one of the first to actually start building a public video sharing experience. So we were early. Uh, we, weren't, we were early enough to be successful, but not early enough to be the winner. So, that, so while we were building, YouTube launched. And YouTube, I remember seeing, seeing what they built, and I'm like, oh, my God, they've done everything right. Like they really have built a beautiful platform. And I reached out to the founders and I said, hey, why don't we merge? And we talked about it because we, we, had, we had an amazing team. They were still very small. But, you know, when, when you talk about merging two startups, egos get in the way and everybody's so excited about what they're building. I saw what they had built and I'm like, this is, this is the shit. And, and so I, we tried for about a, for a few weeks, but they were off to the races because in the middle of that negotiation, there was a clip that, that got shared on YouTube, Lazy Sunday clip, which became very famous, and it put YouTube on the map. And there was no, YouTube was not going to sell. And so we just parted ways and we went off and built our company. But I knew we were always going to be second to YouTube. So then at what point does Sony come knocking? Well, so I wish it, it had been that simple, right? Uh, I wish. So what happened is that at some point, I decided that we had to sell. And I had engineer that sell, that sell. Um, and so I reached out to partners that we could build operating relationships with, like partnerships versus acquisition. And I felt like by building that partnership, 
we would showcase what we were capable of. Like they would see the talent we have, they would see what we had built, and that could turn into an acquisition. It's exactly what happened because we had multiple offers, the most, the biggest of which were from real networks, uh, which most folks don't know today, but with, at the time they were the powerhouses in, in audio on the internet and, and Sony. And so we were, we met with Sony to build the American idol, to basically take American idol and move it online. And we went through this long process. I don't think it made any sense for us to build American idol online, but that process allowed us to showcase who we were, what we could do. And in the middle of that negotiation, I got a call from, you know, from Sony, from a very high up person at Sony. And they said, we want to buy you. Um, and I said, we weren't for sale. I just said we weren't for sale because we were still talking to Fox at that moment about American Idol. But I had, I had showcased what we were doing with Fox with Sony. And they said, what do you mean you're not for sale? Why would you not, why would you not sell to us? And I said, well, we're still building, which made them want us more. And eventually through a competitive uh, process, we were able to sell to Sony at a price that made sense for us. And so we sold and I stayed there for two years. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So, Again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So in this regard, then, you know, how do you know when is the right time to to sell and and let go? So we're very different than you know we're 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 passionate founders, Dave and I were. But every time we raised funding, we actually would look at each other in the eye and we'd say, "Listen, are we going to build or are we going to sell? Are we still? Do we think we still have it in us to build? Do we think this company is worth building, or should we sell?" And every time we raise money, we would do that. And most you know you could see most of the time for the first few rounds, we're builders. But at some point in both cases, we're like this. This category, category, the internet is hot, the category we're in is hot, and our company is hot. Those three things will never happen again, probably. We need to sell. That's kind of how we'd look at it. We look at each of those areas, the overall, overall tech, our sector within the tech, and then our company within that sector. And I promise most founders, when they reach a point when they see that those three things are in alignment, it's a great time to sell. You'll probably max the price then. 
And then you can go out and build something else. And maybe the next thing becomes the thing that goes public or, or you know, becomes a unicorn. But I think you have to be practical like that as a founder. You can't let your emotions get in the way of your decision making. And in our case, Dave and I were very practical about this part of our business. So obviously here are two companies, two exits. So really good uh, hit rate, Josh. Yeah, so. Thank you. Thank you. So what, what, what made you, you know, switch sides of the table? Why, why going at it now and starting a VC fund? It sounds like a completely, completely different. I mean, founding a venture. So first of all, I, I purposefully, purposefully, both cases decided I needed to start a venture capital fund. So it's not like being an entrepreneur of a company, but it is, there are some similarities, right? It's, it's certainly less stressful, but you're fundraising and you have to decide who you are, how to differentiate in a way that matters, but it's, you know, a hundred to one easier than actually starting a company and running a company. I just couldn't handle the stress of being a founder again. I mean, it, it, it's the, the second company at Crackle, I got sleep apnea from the stress, which is very unusual. You know, so I went through a whole process of getting, of, of cure, healing myself, which I've done, I don't have it anymore, but that your body doesn't lie. When you're feeling stress, your body doesn't lie. And my body was saying, hey, you need to maybe not be a founder again. Take a break. And so we founded Freestyle, Dave and I did. And it's the same guy I'd worked with for both companies. And it was the right thing for us. And it's less stress, but also having an impact and being close to founders. So we decided the next best thing to being a founder was actually investing in founders and helping them build their companies. And that's why we started Freestyle back in 2010. So freestyle seven funds that you raised to 150 yes. million uh, under management, and then also you had the opportunity there to invest in four unicorns. Yes. What were what, what were those unicorns? And and obviously four, you know, gives you more of an idea of a pattern of things that repeat. So, what were those unicorns, and what were the patterns that you saw repeating? I mean, the main the main pattern that that is still with me, the pattern recognition I use every day now when I meet with founders is how to recognize what a commander looks like. And I don't think of a commander like a war commander, but someone who can command the room, they can, they can uh, take command of a room, of a situation. They don't need to do it by yelling at people or, or being a dictator. They do it in whatever way is needed in that moment. They're able to adapt because they also know what they don't know. So there are a bunch of things. When you're a, a confident commander, you recognize where you need help, where you don't need help. You recognize what you don't know. You don't know what your blind spots are because that's hard, they're blind, but you know that you have them, right? And, and with all of that together, you are an amazing recruiter. You're an amazing fundraiser. You know when to, you don't have your ego in it. You know when to pivot, you know when to stop, you know when to keep going. If you, com if you are the commander in the room, you're doing all these things better than everyone who is not. And so we look, I've seen in all those unicorns, all four of those CEOs that I was involved in personally, they all are similar in that way. They're not the same. So there's no, there is no formula for being a founder, right? Founders come in all different shapes, sizes, ethnicities, but, but this idea that you are comfortable in your own skin and that you are comfortable both leading by saying, here's what we're going to do. And by seeking consensus and seeking input in what you're going to do, that's what we look for, that combination of both of those skills. Usually, most, so many founders I meet with either have one or the other. They feel like they have to dictate and lead by, dictate by being a dictator, or they're constantly seeking consensus. 
Neither is the right way. It's being able to incorporate both of those and know when to apply consensus, when to apply, you know, being more of a leader, direct leader, and, and really telling everybody what you think needs to happen. Great leaders incorporate both those things. So as you're thinking about this, you know, the, the patterns that we're talking about leaders and commanding a room, diligence, obviously, is a big deal here because you, you got to make sure that you're investing in stuff that, uh, that makes sense, no? And, and that is going to generate returns. So when it comes to diligence, what would you say is the most important question that you would ask a founder? The mo well, most of my questions center around trying to understand that founder's ability to be the commander we're looking for, right? And so I ask questions that I know they won't know the answer to, to see how they respond. And the best founders will say the following, here's what I know, great. Here's what I don't know, great. And here's how I'm going to figure out how to resolve what I don't know. It's simple. Those are the three things we look for. And it's amazing how many founders fall short on one or more of those. You know, they think they, they pretend they know more than they do, or they say they don't know, but they don't then take the next step, which is to talk about how they can answer what they don't know. So that, that's, that's my simple focus on founders. Usually that kind of dialogue answers most of my questions about who they are. And then we switch to the second most important thing, which is understanding the size of the market opportunity. Because you know, there could be a great market opportunity that isn't a venture-backable a venture opportunity, but we need to understand the size of it. How they maneuver from where they are today to hitting that, to, to achieving something big in that, in that large opportunity is less important at this stage, at the seed stage, because you have a great leader, great commander, you have a huge opportunity. They're bound to maneuver along the way. They have to be able to, they have that flexibility and that knowledge to maneuver along the way. So even though it's important, the third thing we focus on is the roadmap, right? The product roadmap. But we know that roadmap's going to change. We know what really can't change, the market opportunity and the quality of the CEO. But that third thing, and when all those three things align at the same time, obviously our decision is easier. But oftentimes, you'll find that two of the three will be a fit for us. And, and we, we typically need those first two items, the quality of the CEO, the size of the market to check out. So after about 12 years at Freestyle. Um, Back to being old. There you go. There you go. So, so to, I mean, 12 years. I mean, come on. It's, a, it's, it's quite some time. You know, many, many things that you've done, many investments, many founders. Something triggered there, a shift when it comes to investment thesis that they triggered also a changing chapter for you and starting, you know, your latest thing. So walk us through that. Most founders who have become investors even though they've reduced the stress in their lives dramatically by switching from one to the other, we're still looking to be pioneers. We're still looking to try and figure out how can we be different in a way that matters? Because to be like everybody else, you know, no founder wants to be like everybody else. No investor who's been a founder wants to be like everybody else, even if there's wealth involved in being like everyone else, right? It's just not. And so when, when COVID struck, there were a bunch of ingredients that needed to be in place. When COVID struck, I, um, I decided to try and do my part to help uh, our state. And I pitched our governor um, on creating a task force 
to really help leverage the private sector to solve many of the problems the state was having. And I invited my friend Bill Trenchard to join me. Bill's a, a partner at First Round. And we took time off from our jobs to do it. When that happened, and we had success around uh, food insecurity and track and trace software and other areas, when that happened, it actually changed my whole mindset on climate change. I've been involved in the nonprofit world of climate change for a long time and had modest impact. And Raj was very similar. He had his own nonprofit that was doing something around climate change that, that also was not really moving the needle. When I saw how powerful the private sector was in solving these big existential challenges the state was facing, I had to leave and start Climactic. It, it, was, um, it became kind of a religion for me uh, to actually redirect all of my energy into helping the planet. And Raj felt the same way. We felt we could do it and energize businesses. We felt we could reimagine how businesses operate as part of our contribution to fighting climate change. That was the opportunity that drew us the decarbonization of everything. The first opportunity in the 90s that Raj and I saw was the digitization of everything. And now we're seeing the opportunity to decarbonize everything and reimagine everything businesses do, how they operate, how they move people and things around, how they manufacture. It was a massive opportunity. And we felt like our backgrounds as software founders and, and software investors, especially smart software, which has been around for a long time, and is already having an, an amazing impact in climate change. We felt we could really be pioneers and differentiate in a way that matters to founders and to this opportunity around fighting climate change. And, and so obviously now with Climactic, you know, incredible the, uh, the stuff that you guys are looking at doing and investing in, in founders that are really solving some of those critical issues that, uh, that we're dealing with. And in fact, now you guys are going to be announcing soon, you know, the close of your fund, which is, uh, is amazing. Congratulations on that. Uh, and I guess uh, along those lines, you know, the question that I like to ask you is those founders that you guys are investing in, I mean, they have the world on their shoulders. You know, talk to us about what that means and, uh, and, and what that looks like, though. So as a, you know, you know, having been a founder yourself, as a founder, there's nothing, there's no more stressful job in tech, right? It, it, you're... You have the burden of the company on your shoulders, all the employees, all the funds you're raising. And then you obviously are trying to achieve something amazing. It, it's the most stressful job I've ever had. Then you throw on top of that, you're now working on the planet. And, and the way it's positioned today is you're just trying to prevent the planet from burning up, right? That's the, that's the mission, right? It's not to, the way we've positioned climate change and climate tech today is really more that. That's a burden. And every day, every day, you're reading about something else happening to the planet that's horrible. You're in that, that's your zeitgeist, right? Because you're, you're reading articles on this. You're, you're following, you know, all of the, the cop, you know, the cop meetings and, and your cop 28, you know, which just happened was both exciting and terrifying because we see where we're headed as a, as a planet. So you throw that existential stress on top of the founder stress. And it's almost unbearable. Founders already have higher incidence of mental illness than, than almost any other profession. And so we as investors, we go in knowing that, right? We know that that is part of being a founder in climate tech. And we know that this is something we have to address head on. And so we talk about it with our founders. We also are, you're going to hear from us in the coming months, we're building and going to offer a mental health uh, platform for our founders. 
that we think will really help them with their challenges and hopefully help them before it becomes an issue, right? Help identify when they're stressed, when, they're, when they have anxiety, when they're feeling the burden that's too much before it becomes too much. And so I hope, I hope that is really, I hope that when we announce that, it catalyzes other investors to do something similar. That's amazing. Now, imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight, Josh, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Climactic is fully realized. What does that world look like? We are living in a, in a vibrant, flourishing world where everyone, right, not just the Western, the Western folks, everyone, the developing world and, and the Western world have free access to energy. The energy is all renewable. And every product you buy never dies. Every product you buy has a life that extends, always extends beyond the product, whether it's reused as a product, resold as a product, whether it's turned into or upcycled into a different product. Everything is constantly being reused and circular. And all of our energy is clean and it's abundant and free for everybody. That's that the looks, world I want to live in. That looks like a beautiful world. That's for sure. Now, I want to talk about the past, but doing it with a lens of reflection. Let me, yes. let me put you into a time machine. And I'm going to bring you back in time to that moment where you had decided, you know, to give your notice at the telco company in Boulder, and you are now packing your bags to go to San Francisco. Now, let's say on the way out, you were able to stop that younger self, that younger Josh, and you're able to give that younger Josh one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Choose your co-founder very carefully. Understand yourself. Understand what you need to complement you to build your amazing business. And don't look at bringing on someone that looks like you, acts like you, sounds like you, just because it makes you more comfortable. Find someone who complements you, who's different than you are, who brings different skills, even if it makes you uncomfortable. Because if you do that right, that partnership can live for decades. And, it can, and you, can, you can take that partnership, that work experience to do amazing things, building companies, building a venture capital fund. So choose that co-founder wisely. I love that. I love that, Josh. So for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter. Uh, I would say both my profiles, LinkedIn and Twitter, which... Uh, I can share. I'm Josh Media on Twitter, and I'm Josh Felser on LinkedIn, and I do listen to and respond to my DMs on both. Amazing. Well, easy enough. Well, hey, Josh, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Thank you so much. I really am honored to actually be here. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.